22, Matthew 22. We're going to continue after this with a little bit more on Baptists and uh, some different directions with it. But the Baptist distinctives, as far as the Baptist distinctives go, this is the last one tonight. And uh, so we've been doing this acrostic of Baptists to help us remember that. So let's see if we can remember them, starting with B. What is, what is the B? Biblical authority. A. Autonomy. P. Priesthood of the believer. T. And they are? Baptism and Lord's Supper. Very good. I. Individual soul liberty. You're getting weaker. S. Save church membership. T. Two offices, which we spent the last two weeks talking about the deacons and the pastors. Very good. So tonight, we're going to look at Matthew 22, and I think I already mentioned what it was going to be that we are going to talk about, so maybe it'll give you a little bit of, I already gave you a little bit of a heads up, but if you don't know, maybe you can try to figure it out when we talk through Matthew 22, or when we read Matthew 22, starting in verse number 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Uh, and obviously that's, you know, especially as you read through the, the last half of the book of Matthew, that's what it seemed like that was their goal in life. Their mission was to try to trip Jesus up if they could. And, and they were always looking for an opportunity to take him, but they were afraid of uh, what the Romans would say. They were afraid of what the other Jews would say. And so they, they were, Jesus kept just kind of twisting them in knots. But uh, that's what they were trying. They're trying to figure out how they could entangle him and trip him up. But obviously Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. They weren't able to do that. But it says in verse number 16, And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. They brought unto him a penny. By the way, a penny is a day's wage. It was not like a cent like we think of today. Uh, a day's wage back in those days was considered to be about $32. But that was the, the penny that they brought him. And he said unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Now we could talk a lot about the, the background and the backstory of that. We're not going to spend time on that tonight because that's not necessarily what we're talking about here. But Christ's words, and this, by the way, he, he uttered these words just a, a hours before his crucifixion, really. But um, they, they really imply that in his mind there was a, a real and a vital distinction between uh, governmental institutions and religious institutions. And that's what they were trying to trip him up on. Um, and so the idea is, is what's commonly called the separation of church and state. And that is the last in the acrostic of Baptists. The S stands for the separation of church and state. Now, George Truett, George W. Truett, maybe you recognize that name. He was a, he was a pretty well-known pastor in the early 1900s. But in 1920, speaking from the steps of the United States Capitol, 15,000 people were there. And he got up and he said this, Render unto Caesar... The things that are Caesar's and unto God, the things that are God's, is one of the most revolutionary and history-making utterances that ever fell from those lips divine. That utterance, once and for all, marked the divorcement of church and state. It was the sunrise gun of a new day, the echoes of which are to go on and on until every land, whether great or small, 
The doctrine shall have absolute supremacy everywhere of a free church in a free state. So that's what we want to talk about tonight, the separation of church and state. And I want to tell you what the term means, where we find support for that in Scripture. And then I want to give you some, some historical events that actually led up to us having that separation of church and state in the United States. Very interesting. We have a lot of that history right here in Virginia. And, and were it not for the Baptists in Virginia, and in particularly right here in this area, uh, very likely we would not have this separation of church and state uh, that we have today. So I think it will be an interesting study as we get into it. But turn over to Rome, Romans chapter 13, because I want to define some of these terms first of all, and, and we, could, we could really spend a couple weeks talking about this. I, I'm going to try to go through this fairly quickly, and uh, honestly, if you, if you want to uh, digest this a little bit more, maybe you can go back and watch this later on. But first, I want to tell you or, or, or talk about some of the things that the separation of church and state does not mean, because this is very, uh, especially for those who are trying to, to get the church out of government, um, and when I say the church, I'm talking about Christianity, and, and it's not the church that they want out of government, it's Christianity that they want out of government. And so, first of all, it does not mean that the church can't have an opinion on political or governmental or public matters. We absolutely can have an opinion on those things, and we should have an opinion on those things, especially when it comes to things that are moral and biblical issues. When it comes to uh, uh, homosexuality, when it comes to abortion, when it comes to all these other things, they want to say, well, you, the, you know, the church shouldn't have any say in that. We absolutely can have a say in those issues. It also does not mean that public expressions of religion are inappropriate or illegal, which is another thing they're trying to do away with. They don't want the Ten Commandments being in courthouses. They don't want the manger scene being displayed in public, uh, um, uh, public areas. But in a, in a lot of instances, it's interpret, interpreted in those ways, and, and they couldn't be more incorrect. They, they want everything that has to do with God, and they've already succeeded in a lot of ways of getting the Bible out of the public schools and getting prayer out of the public schools and getting prayer out of a lot of these you know, public places because that's a religious thing, and religious things do not belong in uh, governmental institutions. Uh, so... Public expressions of religion being inappropriate or illegal is not what the term separation church and state means, and it also does not mean the separation of God and government, okay? Separation of church and state, and we're going to talk about what it means, but it does not mean that God cannot be in the government, and again, that kind of goes back to really the other two things that we just mentioned, but to, to make sure that that's very clear, it does separation of church and state, especially when we get into a little bit more of the history, you're going to understand that that is not what the founders had in mind. That's not what those who, who were fighting for this religious liberty had in mind when they uh, were fighting for the separation of church and state. So then what does it mean then? Well, number one, the doctrine of separation really serves to keep a Baptist church pure from relationships and influences that are foreign and or harmful to its obedience to the scripture and honoring of Jesus Christ. And, and I know that's a long way to say, basically, that, that separation has historically emphasized the importance of civil government having no authority to tell the church what it can or cannot preach. It doesn't have any influence. It doesn't have any control over any aspect of a Baptist church. And Baptists now are not the only ones that fight for the separation of church and state, but uh, historically, Baptists were the only ones that did. Uh, there are other institutions and other churches that, that do believe in that now, but because of that, churches, and Baptist churches in particular, oppose any establishment of a state church. 
Nowhere in history do you see that the Baptists were proposing that the Baptist church be the state church of any state or the national church of any country or anything like that. We believe that the godly influences of Scripture and churches and people that are obedient to the Word of God should influence government in order to have a beneficial civil authority. We should have that influence, but there should not be any one particular institution that is set up as a state church. So what does the term state mean? Well, the term state refers to the government. When we're talking about the separation of church and state, and of course that's what we're doing is defining these terms. So the Bible really indicates that governments are ordained by God to provide law and order. That's what their job is. And we see that very plainly in Romans chapter 13 and verse number 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. By the way, that means that anybody that gets into a position of governmental leadership is put there by God. Sometimes he's put there by God to be a judge to those who are not living for him. Because the Bible says very plainly, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And when God is not the Lord, then he has to send judgment. And look how many times he did that on, on the people of Israel, right? I mean, over and over and over and over, God put people in those positions to bring judgment on that nation. And I'm sure they, you know, many times they looked at it and, and we can see that. Why would God be doing this to us? You know, why is that person in power? We, we do that now, right? But God puts them there. God, the powers that be are ordained of God. But it says this in verse 2, Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. That's a pretty strong verse, right? For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have the praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. So there's a lot that's, that's there as well. But, uh, but again, what, the, what they're there to do is to reward and praise the good and to punish the evil. And we're supposed, and now obviously, uh, especially in our country, the government has gotten huge, and it's way overstepped the bounds of, of, of what it was even originally intended to do, but certainly what the Bible gives it the power to do. But government leaders are to act for the benefit of the citizens. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 2. If, as many of these as you can turn to, I'd, I'd like you to do that. We have a good number of verses that we're going to turn to tonight, but a lot of them I'm just going to give you uh, for the sake of time, and I have them up here on the... Uh, on the screen, so you can write them down and go back and look at them later just for the sake of time. But 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 13 says this, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. So again, the leaders are there. They're supposed to be acting uh, for the benefit of the citizens. And sometimes they overstep that balance, but we are to submit. We are to submit to that authority as long as that, and we're going to look at this later, but as long as that authority does not go against the word of God. When it begins to go against the word of God, that's when we rise up against it and we don't follow the, the commands that were given there by the government if it goes against the word of God. But uh, we'll see that here in just a minute. But Baptists and other Christians, uh, we have a lot of responsibilities to, to the government. We are, we are supposed to pray for our leaders and for our government officials. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17. Again, for sake of time, there's a few of these that we're not going to turn to. You can write these down 
and uh, look at them later. But 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, 1 Peter 2, 17, we're supposed to pay taxes, right? There's, there, are, there are pockets of Christians out there who say, well, the government's not going to use it right, so we shouldn't pay our taxes. Well, God very, Jesus very clearly says, render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, right? We see that in Matthew chapter 22, verse 17 through 22. Whether you agree with it or not, hey, get people in there that will lower our taxes. That's, that's what our responsibility is, but we can't just say, I'm not paying it, right? Romans chapter 13, verse 6 and 7 gives us that as well. But we're supposed to obey the government except where that obedience would be clearly contrary to God's will. And we see that in Acts chapter 5 and verse number 29. You can turn there because I am going to read this, and I, I kind of mentioned it already. But uh, to actually see it in there I think is helpful to us because Acts chapter 5 and verse number 20, 29, uh, and of course they were, you know, Peter and the other apostles were being uh, beaten and whipped and, and commanded not to preach and teach in the name of Jesus, right? Again, uh, that happened more than once. But then it says this in verse number 29, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. In other words, what they said is, We're not going to stop preaching the name of Jesus Christ. We're not going to stop preaching in his name. He's commanded us to do this, and we ought to obey God rather than some man that tells us that we can't do that. So then, that's, that, that gives us an indication of what the term state is. It refers to the government. We have some responsibilities in that aspect. But then what does the term church mean? I think the term church, and of course we know what church is, uh, but I think the term church, when we're talking about the separation of church and state, refers to any religious organization. For, for us, as Baptists in particular, that would include our local congregations, but that would be the various entities that are established for religious purposes, whether that's a Christian school, whether that's a Christian college, um, whether that's some other ministry that is being operated by the church, some kind of institution for the ministry, all of those are encompassed f for, for the purpose of this uh, uh, separation of church and state. All of those things are encompassed in that term church. The government does not have any right to come in and tell, uh, tell a, a Christian school what they cannot and what they can and cannot teach in that Christian school. Government doesn't have any right to come in and tell the parents that are homeschooling what they can or cannot teach their children. So um, all of those things would be included in that. And of course, Baptists teach that the nature of church, according to our biblical mandate, is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a lot of verses that talk about that, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We have the responsibility to teach and to uh, develop believers. We see that in Matthew 28, Ephesians chapter 4. We have the responsibility to minister in Christ's name. We find that in Matthew chapter 25. So the, the church is to rely on the sword of the Spirit and not the sword of the government in carrying out its mission. And that was, that was one of the big issues that our founding fathers had at the very beginning is that the, the government or, or the church was using the arm of the government to uh, force people to be part of that religion. We're going to see that when we talk a little bit more about the history. But again, that's, we, we don't believe that that is what the Word of God teaches at all. Ideally, and this is number four, the relation of church and state is mutually beneficial. And when I say that, I mean this. For example, the state is to provide order and safety, right? We ought to be able to meet in a public setting, in a church building, without the fear of somebody coming and blowing, a, blowing the church up because they don't like what we're doing, right? That's the government's responsibility to keep us safe in that way. And those, are, you know, that's, that's useful to the church in carrying out that mission. And then the church has a responsibility to positively impact society, by helping to develop law-abiding, hard-working, honest citizens, right? 
ideally, that's what we're trying to develop. And those who are Christians and those who are growing in Christ are going to be exactly that. So it's mutually beneficial when we're both doing what we're supposed to be doing and when those two things are separate. Number five, then, is this. Baptists especially contend, and we say that this mutual benefit works best when the institution of church and state are separate and when neither one of them is seeking to control the other, right? As a church, we should not be the official religion of the state of Virginia. As a government, we should not be, they should not be seeking to control what the church does or does not do. The state's not to dictate doctrine. Right? That's, not their, that's not their right. That's not their responsibility. They're not to, to, to dictate worship style. They're not to dictate organization. They're not to dictate membership or, or personnel for leadership in the church, which again, I say that, but all of those things were being pushed on the churches um, back in the 16 and 1700s, even in America. And that's why they pushed back against those things. So the state's not to do those things, but then the church is not to seek power the church is not to seek financial support of the state for spiritual ends, which is something that we're seeing happening more and more, uh, but that's the model that we see that's set forth in the New Testament. By the way, most of you didn't even know that this was a thing, but um, during the pandemic, the government was offering money to institutions, including churches, to help bail them out when all the, uh, when, you know, when everything was shutting down and, you know, uh, they were saying that people couldn't gather, and, and it was actually called the CARES Act. It, st it stands for Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security. It was $2 trillion that they were giving out to churches, um, uh, nonprofits, small businesses. We rejected that wholeheartedly. If we had wanted to, we could have taken money to help keep the doors open, so to speak. Um, a lot, of, a lot of people argued in favor, and I say a lot of people, I'm, I'm really talking a lot of more of your non-denominational type churches, but a lot of them actually took money uh, under this CARES Act to help keep their doors open because people were not coming in and they had staffs to pay and all this other stuff. But, uh, you know, a lot of people argued in favor of taking that funding because there were, you know, quote, no strings attached and because it was not an unending flow of money, so the government couldn't use that to dictate what happens in the church and whatever else because this was just an emergency Relief, and, and I actually had a couple conversations with some uh, pastors that uh, would, would even be, you know, kind of in the same type of circles that we're in uh, about this, this whole issue. And, uh, you know, they said, what do you think? I mean, you think it would be wrong to take it? And, um, you know, number one, the government has a track record of attaching strings in places that you wouldn't expect them to attach a string. And they can always come back later and say, hey, we gave you this money. And because that was government money, now you have to do this or you have to pay it back. And some of that stuff is starting to happen already, but uh, it'd be very easy for them to control what you can and cannot do in the future, especially if it's in a place where you have a college or a school or something like that. It'd be very easy for them to do that. But number two, and, and I think this was the primary, it, that, that was a huge part for me. Uh, but number two, I, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of other things that we could say in response to that, but the overarching issue to me is if we have to rely on the government to bail us out, this is God's church. If he can't even support his own church, then what are we doing even trying to pretend like we belong to him? What are we doing even tr trying to pretend that he is our master? If he can't take care of us and keep the doors open and help us to stay afloat during a pandemic when things were closed down and all of that other stuff, who, who is our master really? Is it the government or is it God? Right? And, and if we say God can't take care of us, I have to rely on the government, then that kind of shows us where our priorities are. 
And uh, I know our church is smaller, but God took care of us just fine through COVID. And, and in fact, he added exponentially to our church through that COVID time. And uh, I'm not saying it was necessarily just because we didn't take that relief money, but, you know, God got all the other churches that, that didn't take that relief money did just fine through the COVID thing as well, because God is, is God's church. It's not ours anyway, and it's certainly not the government's church, and we don't need them to bail us out. And so, um, you know, that's, that's what I mean when I say that, that it, it's, it, the mutual aid works the best or the mutual benefit works the best when the church stays out of the government and the government stays out of the church. Number six, then, would be this. The very nature of the gospel and of church calls for that, that type of relationship. And again, I've, I've just written down a bunch of verses. Uh, I'll put them up there so you can see them. But uh, the Bible shows us that humans are created by God with a competency to know and to follow his will. Find that very plainly in Genesis chapter 1. But following God's will should be a free choice, not something that we don't have a choice in, not something that the government tells us we have to do. Um, whether that's the church or the state telling us that we have to do that. Salvation in Christ is a result of a free choice to believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We find that in John chapter 3, right? But so neither church nor state should ever interfere with the free proclamation of the gospel or with the freedom of people to accept that gospel or to reject that. Now, obviously, we don't want people to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they should have the choice to decide if they want to do that or not. It should not be that the government says, you don't have a choice, you're going to die if you don't accept it, or you're going to die if you reject this, right? Which is what we've seen all the way throughout history. It's happened many, many times. Churches ought to be composed of people who have freely chosen to be saved, to be baptized, to congregate in that congregation. We see that in Acts chapter 2. People should support the churches voluntarily by their contributions of tithes and offerings. And again, I say that because many, many times, they were forced to pay taxes in order to pay for the state church and everything else. So only Jesus is to be the Lord of our church, not some governmental body, not some ecclesiastical organization. And again, we see that in Ephesians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 2. So let me give you a little bit of a history of this, and, and hopefully this will help, make it, help it make a little bit more sense. But the history of the, of the church-state relations, and I know it sounds like it could be very dry, but I think it's actually very interesting because the, the biblical idea of church-state relations has, has very seldom been realized in a lot of societies throughout history. There has never, very, very seldom, until, until America came along, there was not really this idea of the separation of church and state. All, almost all the way through, oh, I say that, I, I mean, I can't say that across the board. Obviously, Israel had a theocracy, and God, you know, uh, God was the ruler in, uh, or was the, you know, the ruler, for, for lack of a better term, he was the king in Israel, but um, the arrangement that varied throughout the centuries uh, differed, but one thing remained constant, and that was that all forms of religious expression, except the official religion of whatever nation it happened to be, they were persecuted. If you didn't follow what that nation said that you had to do and believe, you were persecuted. People who believed in freedom of religion, like the Baptists, were regarded throughout history as being traitors by the government being heretics by the, by the church that was the head church of that state. So they were persecuted from both sides. They were being persecuted by the government for not following the state religion. They were being per persecuted by that religion for not following that state religion. And really, uh, Baptists were one of the only ones that stood up against that during all of the time. And they weren't always called Baptists. That term Baptist didn't even come around until the 1600s. Um, but there was always that, that true church 
That even if it was underground, even if it was in the background, it was there. Uh, but, but the use of power of the state to enforce religion just sapped the, vir- uh, the spiritual vitality out of all of these populations. And so everybody was religious, but it meant nothing to them because they, they didn't have a choice. They had to be this. And so um, what ended up happening is you just had a host of unsaved people, uh, even in, even in you know, the Anglican church or even in the congregational churches and, and uh, even in a lot of the Methodist churches and stuff, even in the United States, they were just filled with people who were not saved because they didn't have a choice. They had to be that religion or they were going to be persecuted or they were going to be taxed to pay for that religion anyway, so you might as well just be that religion. We see that, that just happened all the way throughout history. And also what you saw is that these efforts by governments to protect that established religion of a country resulted in wars, it, it resulted in civil strife, and uh, it undermined the government. So the union of church and state was and still is harmful to both. It's harmful to the church and it's harmful to the state. So rulers of, of human societies really have, have long known that there's great power in uniting the secular power of the government with religious power. You don't have to look far into Egypt's history to see that with the pharaohs. You don't have to look far into Rome's history to see that with the Caesars. But those are both well-known examples of, of these long-running empires where these leaders themselves claimed to be God, and the people had to worship them as God. The pharaohs were worshipped as God. The Caesars were worshipped as gods. And, and also in both of those empires, the state-controlled religion supported the priestly class, these guys were, they, they were a, a, their own separate class of citizens. If you were a priest in the national religion, then you were supported by the tax money. Uh, there was just varying levels of religious obedience that was demanded um, from all of the citizens. Well, let me give you this, because this is pretty interesting, and maybe you didn't know this before. The Catholic Church came around in about 300 A.D. So you think about history, okay? 4004 BC is when you take all the accounts of the Bible and all the genealogies and everything else. 4004 BC is when creation happened. 4 BC was when Jesus was born. And I know it sounds weird because you'd think, why wouldn't it just be zero? But the, the way, I mean, it, it wasn't like they were saying, okay, you know, this is 10 BC. Jesus is coming in 10 years, you know. They didn't know that. Now it's all looking back on that now. But 4 B.C. is when Jesus came, and so roughly around 29 A.D. is when Jesus died. Uh, so 300 A.D., the Roman emperor, which obviously Rome ruled the world at that time, and by the way, that was, that was something that was really necessary for the gospel to be spread. What is, what's the term? All roads lead to Rome, right? And so that meant that all roads led out of Rome, too. And that's what they used to, to get the gospel out all, all over across the known world. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, the Greek language and, and just all of those things together combined to make it so that the gospel was very easily spread in that time. But in A.D. 300, um, Constantine came in as the Roman emperor, and he took that in a kinder and gentler direction, but, but it was one that was actually tremendously damaging to Christianity. He saw all the inroads that Christianity had made on the Roman Empire, and in spite of the persecution, he saw how Christianity was spreading, and he became a Christian, quote-unquote, because I don't know if he actually got saved or not. I don't think he did, especially if you look at what he started, but he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, and 
uh, in one fell swoop, he basically co-opted much of the growing government. Uh, He gave himself legitimacy. He birthed the Roman Catholic Church, which obviously the Roman Catholic Church is not preaching the gospel by any stretch. And going back into the history even deeper, Constantine actually saw uh, his, his army was getting defeated, and he prayed to God and said, if you would, uh, you know, if you'd give me the victory over these, then I'll become a Christian. Well, he saw a sign in the sky, and uh, that sign gave him the promise that they were going to be, that they were going to win. They won, so he became a Christian. That's how, that was his, that was his salvation experience. So that'll, that'll show you how shallow that is. But uh, the Roman Catholic Church then obviously took it even a step further, and with the Pope in the Middle Ages, they, they put themselves in control of nations, states, governments, everything. So from 500 A.D. to 1500 A.D., it's known as the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages because for that 1,000 years, the Catholic Church ruled everything with an iron grip. And they ruled kings, okay? They had the, op- they had the right as the Catholic Church to excommunicate anybody that they wanted to excommunicate. Well, with everybody being part of the Catholic Church, because they didn't really have a choice, even the kings could be excommunicated. So if they didn't do what the Pope told them to do, the Pope would threaten them with excommunication, and then they would do what the Pope wanted them to do. So the Pope, essentially, was the ruler of the entire known world and all the governments and everything else. Now, a lot of, some of these kings tried to push back against him, uh, against the Pope and everything else, but threatened with excommunication, none of them wanted to go to hell, so they just decided to do what the Pope told them to do. So the church and the state were, were completely one. And uh, then obviously you had these, the, the taxes that were being collected were being uh, collected not only to pay for the king and the government, to pay, but to pay for the religion and everything else. And so that was just, a, it was just a, a very, very dark time in world history, and that's why it's called the Dark Ages. But with the start of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, you remember the date, the year, just the year that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Catholic Church. Do you remember what that year was? 1517. 1517, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses uh, to the door of the Catholic Church, and the Protestant Reformation started. Uh, Essentially, that's what gave rise to it, and the Pope lost his control over individual countries. The model shifted back to a church-state union. So it was not this worldwide control. Now it was every individual government that was deciding what religion they wanted to be. Well, by that time, uh, who was the, uh, what, was the, what was one of the main religions that was started during the, the Reformation? Yeah, Lutheranism, right? Because Martin Luther, right? And there was others that were started during that time, but Lutheranism started to spread, and that was in direct opposition to the Catholic Church, although there was a lot in Lutheranism that didn't change from the Catholic Church, and one of them was when they made Lutheranism the, the state religion, they persecuted everybody who was not a Lutheran. So they were doing the exact same thing that the Catholics were doing. They were just doing it from a perspective of we have the truth because we're basing it off the Word of God, not off of all this Catholic tradition and everything else. So they were really, essentially, they were doing the exact same thing. Um, So every ruler chose to be Catholic or Protestant. And and that was a lot of things that were going back and forth, especially in England, which you know that our history, uh, the history of America, started not too long after that Reformation because that's when, I mean, by that time, Christopher Columbus, 1492, he had already come to the New World and discovered it. 
they started sending people over. 1607 was Jamestown. So you're not talking that long at all after that. And so this, this battle was going back and forth between whether or not the New World was going to be Protestant or Catholic. And there's a, there's a whole lot of history to it um, that, that I don't really have time to go into. But 1588, the Spanish Armada, right? You remember hearing that story? Uh, Spain and England, and, and that's really what gave rise to England becoming a world power. They defeated the greatest navy in the world, the Spanish Armada, and that was something that God gave them a victory over. Now, the, the uh, Queen of England was a Protestant. Spain was Catholic. Had Spain taken over England, then very, very, very possibly all of those Englanders that were becoming to the New World would have been Catholic. Right? As it turns out, they mostly were Protestant as they were coming over. But again, England had their own state church too. They were Anglicans, right? They, they had their own state church and they were doing the exact same thing. So one of the great errors of the Protestant reformers was that while they were trying to fix a large percentage of the doctrinal errors, they kept so much of the system of the Catholic church. One of the errors that they kept was that, you know, uh, even though it was better, it was still a state church. And, and that's another reason that we as Baptists say that we're not Protestants. We were never part of the Protestant Reformation. We're not part of that movement. A lot of the Reformers were just as bad as the previous Catholic rulers in the way that they persecuted everybody else. They, they persecuted the Anabaptists. They persecuted the Waldensians. They persecuted the people that we came from. We were never part of that, that, that movement. They, uh, Anabaptist means rebaptize, right? Uh, and so while the Lutherans were saying the just shall live by faith and all of these other things, they still held on to their Catholic baptisms and everything else. So when somebody truly got saved and separated from the Catholic Church and came to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior by faith without works, they got baptized and they were persecuting all of those who were re-baptizing because they already said, you've been baptized in the Catholic Church already. You've been baptized in the Lutheran church already. Why do you need to get rebaptized? So they, they began persecuting all of them. They, these Anabaptists many times had to meet in secret in the woods and, you know, underground essentially because of all that was going on. So this model of a state church union is the historical model of England. Henry VIII in 1534 created the Anglican church out of the Catholic church and basically proclaimed himself to be the head of the, that church. And so the current queen, Elizabeth, was still quote, the defender of the faith, but the Anglican church in England was financed by tax money. And even though they didn't persecute or enforce religious laws by that point, there's somewhat of, there was somewhat of religious liberty in England, but you still had to be part of that religion, and you still had to pay taxes to that state church. And so it was that Protestant model that was copied from the Catholic church, throwing, you know, copied from the Roman Empire that, that came to America during that colonial period. And so early on in America, there was no freedom of religion. You know, we hear often that, oh, the, the pilgrims came over because of the freedom of religion. Well, number one, there was not very many people over here to enforce it, but anyone that was over here that had started to establish governments was enforcing this state religion. You had to be Anglican. Uh, Massachusetts and the Puritans, they were enforcing that you had to be a Puritan if you lived in Massachusetts, the, uh, the Plymouth Colony with the pilgrims and so on. So in Massachusetts, in Connecticut, in New Hampshire, these influential early colonies, the Puritans, which later became the Congregational Church, was the state church. 
And so what was happening is people were coming over to America under the guise of religious liberty and getting here and finding out that there was no religious liberty here. And you were forced to attend. You were forced, you know, by taxes to tithe to support the church. You were forced at least to some extent to an external obedience. You had to follow that church. You didn't have any freedom to do what you wanted to do. So as colonial America grew, Baptists from Europe started to come to America. They started to immigrate, and they, they, they got here only to find out that there was no freedom of religion, and they were very frustrated because they were not allowed to practice their religion freely. That brings in Roger Williams. Now, Roger Williams lived from 1603 to 1683. He was a Baptist, and he was forced to leave the Massachusetts Bay Colony because of his views favoring this separation of church and state and because of persecution by the Congregationalists. He wanted to be a Baptist, and the Congregationalists said, no, you can't be a Baptist here. You're going to be a Congregationalist, or you're, we're going to persecute you. We're going to put you in prison, whatever else. So he fled to uh, what became known as Rhode Island. And so in 1636, he founded the colony of Rhode Island, and, and he called the first city Providence, which is interesting that Providence obviously is the hand of God, and he wrote into its first governing documents the concept that government only ruled in civil things. So that idea of the separation of church and state really started there in the colony of Rhode Island as, I would say, a Baptist colony. It wasn't a Baptist colony, but it was started by Baptists, and the first Baptist church was there in Rhode Island by Roger Williams. And it was there in Rhode Island that he established that first Baptist church in America. Uh, that colony basically said, freedom of religion for everybody. You don't have to be a Baptist to come to Rhode Island. Now, a lot of them did end up congregating there, but they let anybody worship however they wanted to worship. And, and so what he wrote about is, is, quote, a hedge or wall of separation between the garden of the church and the wilderness of the world. And, and it actually became years before that, that wall of separation actually became a national reality. And so the other colonies continued all the way up until the time of the American War for Independence, which was 1776. So for over 100 years, 150 years of history in America, there was a state church in every one of these early colonies. Now, in the 1770s, the most influential colony in America was Virginia. Virginia was probably the largest colony, um, but not just the largest. They, you know, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, all of those guys that we know as founding fathers were all from Virginia. And so Virginia had great influence in what happened, and if Virginia did not ratify something, basically it didn't get passed. So this is the 1770s. Uh, it, it also had a state church. It was the Anglican or the Episcopal Church, and this state and church union put Baptists in jail for preaching without a license. There was many Baptists in Virginia that were put in jail because they didn't have a license to preach from the state church here in Virginia. And you don't, you don't think about this being in America, but it was, and that's the way that it was in all of these states. Well, when the Constitution of the United States was put before the people for ratification, it didn't have any provision in it for religious freedom. And so in 1773, there was a 27-year-old Baptist by the name of Jeremiah Moore, and he was thrown in jail for preaching without a license. That's the only picture I have of him. Uh, it's not a very good picture, but... Uh, um, his gravestone is still, uh, you can still go see it and everything else. But in 1776, he, he bought a, brought a petition to the Virginia Assembly and basically demanded that there would be a revocation of the established church and freedom of worship for everybody. 
and there were 10,000 Baptists in Virginia that signed that position, and there were so many papers that they actually brought it in wheelbarrows to the Virginia State Assembly and put them right there in front of them to see. 10,000 people want you to revoke the state church and give freedom of religion to everybody. Well, they didn't really care about that, the legislation that was being debated. And by the way, Thomas Jefferson was actually, and we'll talk about him in just a second, but Thomas Jefferson said that this, that this debate of the freedom of religion in Virginia, and particularly for the Baptists, because they were the ones who were pushing it, said it was the most fiercely contested piece of legislation of his entire career. I mean, think about how much Thomas Jefferson had of legislation that he wrote and contested and, and debated and everything else. He said it was the most fiercely debated um, piece of legislation in his entire career. But the, the legislation that was being deba debated was related to taxation for the support of state clergy and for the general assessment plan for the support of religious teachers. Well, obviously, the Baptists, and there were 10,000 of them that signed this petition, said, we don't want our money to go to pay for these clergy. We don't even agree with them. We're not, con we're not uh, Anglicans. We're not Episcopals. We don't like the religious teaching that they're put out. Why should we have to pay our taxes so you can pay a state church? And that's what the petition was about. The 10,000 of them signed this thing and brought it to the, uh, the Virginia Assembly and demanded that they revoke this thing. Well, that legislation was defeated, and they didn't sign that into law. And so Thomas Jefferson, just a couple weeks after writing the Declaration of Independence, became the primary support for the Baptists who were trying to get that separation of church and state passed into law in Virginia. So on October 16th of 1777, in a back room in Fredericksburg, Virginia, Thomas Jefferson, George Mason, Edmund Pendleton, George Wythe, and Thomas Ludwell Lee debated for hours, um, and, then, and then came out of that room with the first draft of what became known as the Virginia Statute of Religious Liberty. They came out, and of course it had taken nearly 10 years of lobbying, because it actually started back in 1768, where they started lobbying for this to be put into law. But these men knew the convictions of the Baptists concerning the liberty of conscience and their, uh, conscience and their willingness to suffer to be able to continue preaching the way that they felt that God wanted them to preach. And so Thomas Jefferson had actually attended some of these small Baptist churches in Orange County and in uh, Albemarle County. And George Mason's law office was actually right across the street from where Jeremiah Moore was imprisoned in Alexandria for preaching without a license. And uh, so William Warren, I thought this was a great quote. William Warren, he wrote a book called The Story of Religion in America. He wrote this. Religious freedom had triumphed in Virginia and was soon to spread throughout the nation, and a few years later, in the form of the First Amendment to the Federal Constitution, was to become a part of the fundamental law of the land. At the time of the passage of the measure, Jefferson, its author, was in France, but so proud was he of his part in the memorable struggle that he asked that it be recorded on his gravestone. And this is what Thomas Jefferson's gravestone says today. Thomas Jefferson author of the Declaration of Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. And this, the, the William Warren, William Sweet, who wrote this book, goes on to say, but justice compels the admission that Jefferson's part in this accomplishment was not so great as that of James Madison, nor were the contributions of either or both as important as was that of the humble people called Baptists. So, in 1788... Now, we're 10 years past that Virginia Statute of Religious 
uh, freedom being passed. 1788, James Madison is trying to get Virginia to ratify the new, new U.S. Constitution. Does anybody remember what year the Constitution was ratified in the United States? 1789. So they're, they're in the process of trying to get this thing put into law for the very first time. Declaration of Independence, 1776. Um, Constitution of the United States, 1789. And that was actually the year that, that uh, George Washington was actually elected to be the first president of the United States as well. But all of that was being established, and Virginia was huge in, trying to, in, in being necessary to ratify this Constitution. Well, John Leland... And hopefully you recognize his name. He was a very influential Baptist during that time. Sent James Madison a letter explaining that, re that the Baptists were not going to help ratify the Constitution. And if the Baptists did not help ratify the Constitution in Virginia, then Virginia was not going to be uh, one of the states that would approve the passing of this new U.S. Constitution. So if Virginia was going to pass the Constitution, and it took uh, a majority, in fact, I think with the Constitution, it took all 13 states. Uh, there was a lot of things where they did. Nine out of 13 was necessary for things to pass. But with the Constitution, all 13 states had to ratify the, the Constitution. The Baptists were so influential in Virginia by that time that they said they were not going to support it. And if the Baptists didn't support it, then they didn't have Virginia to help support this new U.S. Constitution. So they had to have the Baptists on board. Well, John Leland, being one of the most influential Baptists in Virginia at that time, met with James Madison, and actually James Madison asked if he could meet with, with uh, John Leland. And in fact, the place that they met is actually a park now, and it's in Orange County. But John Leland explained the Baptist position of separation of church and state as, as well as having religious liberty for everybody. So James Madison promised John Leland that if he got the Baptists in Virginia to support the U.S. Constitution, and Virginia then was on board to help ratify the U.S. Constitution, that as soon as it was passed, he would put a Bill of Rights and basically make the amendments to the Constitution that would, that would uh, give freedom of speech. Uh, sorry, freedom of, freedom of uh, religion and the separation of church and state. And, of course, then the rest is history. But here we see the, the, the influence of the Baptist pastors on Thomas Jefferson, on James Madison, led directly to the First Amendment of the United States, uh, which is this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. How important those words are. No no constitutional restriction was placed on the church, and instead the constitutional restriction was placed on the government and what the government could, uh, you know, the role of government. So the Baptists brought it to America, and America has brought it to the rest of the world. There are, there are places in the rest of the world now who have the separation of church and state, who have the freedom of religion, but it started in America, started in Virginia, and it started with the Baptists in Virginia who would not stop preaching without a license. And so it's so interesting that, you know, uh, there's so many other things that we could say, but do you know that, that uh, John Weatherford was jailed in the Chesterfield County Jail for preaching without a license? And you can still go there, Chesterfield County Jail, right down 288 here. You can still go and see the exact jail where he was put for preaching without a license. John Weatherford, um, when, he was, um, when he was preaching, would stick his hands out the bars of, that wind, uh, of, the, of the jail cell because people gathered, everybody wanted to hear him preach. And people would gather, and there, was, there were some people who were there that were actually swiping at his hands with knives and swords, and his hands got all cut up 
uh, from, from preaching, dripping blood off the ends of his hands while he was standing there preaching in the Chesterfield County Jail. And here's something else that's very, very interesting. They finally decided that they were going to release him from the Chesterfield County Jail, but they said, you stayed here so long that you have a ton of fees that you have to pay before you can be released. Now, how funny is that? You used to have to pay to stay in jail. It's the opposite of that now, but they said, your fines, because of how long you've been here, are very, very high, and he didn't have the money to pay it. And somebody the next day, day after, showed up and anonymously paid all of his uh, fees that he owed. And he was, he was let out of jail, had no idea who it was. And it wasn't until about 10 years later or so that he found out exactly who it was that paid his fees for him to be released from jail. Any, any guesses on who it was? You know him. Nope. It was a politician. Huh? Not James Madison. Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry was the one that paid to get the Baptist out of, out of jail. And, Pat, and Patrick Henry, there's so much that we can talk about. Patrick Henry actually uh, debated the Parsons' cause and everything else and lots of other things that he did. But we have so much, so much Baptist history right here. And, I mean, you could literally just go, you know, of course, about 40 minutes from here. But you go down to Chesterfield Courthouse, probably not even, probably 25 minutes from here. Chesterfield Courthouse, and you can go see the jail where they, were, where they were imprisoned, where the Baptists were imprisoned for preaching without a license, and that's where all of this started. So let me give you quickly just some applications to today. We'll look at a couple of verses, and we'll be done. God has ordained two bodies on the earth that he uses to govern his people. We have the legal government in the, of the country that's responsible for law and order and the practical well-being of the citizens, and then the churches that are responsible for the spiritual well-being of their members. A lot of things that we could say about that. I'm going to skip a few things just for the sake of time. But the continuing temptation is there to use tax money, power of the state, to carry out the ministry of the church. And, uh, but, but Baptists in particular, and now, like I say, others have gotten on board with that, but, but using biblical authority, we continue to emphasize that, that neither the church nor the state should emphasize or, or should should um, exercise authority over the other one. And we continue to stress that the church should not def depend on the finances or on the power of the government to get our message out. And we want to make sure that, that uh, uh, we have a free church and a free state. Um, and it proves to be a blessing to both. Turn to John chapter 8. Two, two verses that I want to look at and we're going to be done. What it comes down to is that we won't tell the government what to do, and we won't accept the government telling us what to do. When they tell us that we, and, 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 and listen, if the day ever comes that they do, there's going to come a day when they tell us we have to stop preaching against homosexuality. There's going to come a day when they, have, when they tell us that, we're going to, that the Bible is hate speech and we can't use the Bible in our religious institutions and whatever else. There's going to come a day when it happens. I pray to God that it, lasts, you know, that, that it doesn't happen for a long time, but they're already trying to push that very, very much. And all it takes is for that swing of power to happen, and they push these things through, and the next thing you know, we're criminals. But um, we've got to be as willing, and particularly I have to be as willing to go to jail as our Baptist forefathers were, because we're not going to stop preaching what the Bible tells us is truth. And that's what they did. And the more they were persecuted, the more they spread. And the faster they spread. And that's one of the things, uh, you know, that, that even Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and some of these others that talked about it were just amazed that the more they were persecuted, the, the more they, they multiplied. And, and we see that all the way throughout history. It's an amazing thing. But somebody said this, eternal vigilance is the price of freedom, especially of religious freedom. So we, as Baptists especially, 
We ought to resist the efforts to co-mingle the church and the state, and we ought to strive for that friendly separation of the two that results in religious freedom. A free church in a free state is the Christian ideal. That's what makes us what we are. If you have to tell somebody that they have to be a certain religion, then it doesn't mean anything anyway. And if you truly understand what the gospel is, you cannot regulate Christianity. You cannot force somebody to be a Christian because it's a decision that you make in your own heart. It's not something you conform to on the outside. Somebody said it this way, when the church and state marry, justice will miscarry. John chapter 8, verse 36 really says that. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. One more verse, turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse number 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Now, I know that's not talking about freedom in a country. That's talking about the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ. But it's, it's, it should be the same across the board, right? That liberty that we have to worship Christ the way that he commands us to worship him. And that's what the separation of church and state is. The true understanding of the separation of church and state has made America a great republic. And to this day, honestly, that freedom is owed to the Baptists. And that's one of the things that often... I think, as Baptists, we forget. We forget what the Baptists who went before us went through to give us what we have. And then you have all these people that are taking Baptists off their name because they don't want to be associated with you know, a particular denomination and you know, just, just dropping everything that it means to be a Baptist. Our personal participation in the separation of church and state is going to keep the church pure and all of us have to do everything we can to keep the church and, state, church and state separate, and we do that by electing officials who will help to continue to promote the separation of church and state. Look, I'm not saying that, that we can't influence the government. We absolutely should be influencing the government. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be Christians in government. Absolutely, there should be Christians in government. And the more we have of Christians in the government, the more we're going to influence the nation in a godly way. Right? But even John Leland and some of these other guys who were, who were strong Baptists and strong supporters of the separation of church and state lobbied Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and some of these other guys to help get those things pushed through. So I'm not saying that we can't, you know, we can't influence the government. We can't influence them for, the, for a right. But they don't control us, and we don't control them. That separation of church and state is what keeps both of us, both of them strong. Right? A good, strong a country where we have the freedoms, and then a good, strong religion where we can we have the freedom to preach the message of the gospel and see people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior on their own free will, which is exactly what God gives us. So I know it's a little bit long, but and there's again there's so much more that we could say about it. I um, I, I encourage you, you know, when you get an opportunity to go back and look at some of the Virginia Baptist history. Uh, there's so much. There's so much. Um, but but that's. So all of these things that we talked about in conclusion here, all of the, um, this acrostic, all the Baptist distinctives, doesn't mean that we're the only ones that believe in biblical authority or we're the only ones that believe in autonomy or the only ones that believe in separation of church and state or these other things, but we are the only ones who believe in all of those things. And that's what makes us Baptist. That's what makes us who we are. And it's something worth standing up for because every one of those principles it's not based on somebody's opinion. It's not based on something that we've been told we had to do. It's based on the Word of God.
And that's what separates us from every other religion, every other denomination. And that's why I'm proud to be a Baptist. Uh, it's not something that we're going to be taking off our church sign. It's not something that we're going to be trying to hide in the bylaws somewhere or something like that. Uh, I'm proud to be a Baptist. I'm proud of those who stood for what they stood for in the years past, and we want to continue carrying that on many, many years and many generations into the future. Very good. Let's pray, and we'll be done. Father, we love you. Can we thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for uh, those who were willing to stand, those who were willing to fight, those who were willing to go to jail and suffer persecution and everything else to give us what we have in this country. And I do thank you for that separation of church and state, that religious freedom that we do have. God, I pray that you'd help us to use it to help spread the message of the gospel while we still have the opportunity to do it. God, we'll thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.